This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we're taking a look at the arts today, and we have a very special guest, Andrew Peterson, who is an author, uh, a host of a, of a, of a chat among, among artists, a, a, a musician. I mean, there's almost no part of the arts that you don't touch. I hear that you're on the edge of filmmaking now, so you just going in all directions. I'm pretty tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're welcome. You could stop by and get a little rest here with yes, us. Glad you. And then, and then Glenn Kreider, who teaches systematic theology here at Dallas, who's a long veteran of table, mm-hmm. table mm-hmm. foreign wars, as we call it. He's been done several podcasts now. But you're really excited about this one, aren't you? I'm very excited. Yeah. Just to be across the table from my friend. I'm, yeah, I'm excited. So, um, so Andrew, let's. We're, our topics: the arts and and thinking through the arts and helping Christians think through the arts and kind of the arts experience, kind of all that. So how did you discover you were an artist, or did you just fall into it? How, 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 did, you, how did you end up doing what you're doing? Well, it's, it's, there's about ten long versions of that story. I think uh, the best way to put it would be that I grew up in the church mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not mostly, completely in the church. Uh, I don't know why I said mostly even. Uh, my dad's a pastor, was a pastor until last year. He just retired after 50 years. Mm. So I grew up in the South and in a small town, uh, one of four kids, and I was the only musician in the family, mm. and um, or the only one really drawn to music. Mm-hmm. And um, my brother and I lo- both loved to listen to music, but I was the one who wanted to make it. It wasn't enough to like just hear it. I wanted to find out what it was like to to get inside a song, you know. And um, and I think I think my brother uh, was a huge influence. He was the one who, when I was reading, you know, uh, pulp fantasy novels, he was the one saying. What are you doing reading that stuff? Read the Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> and uh, and just always kind of raising the bar and pushing hmm. me uh, to consider um, better writing than I tended to when I was a kid. And so I don't know. I just I, I in the in the culture that I grew up in, a lot of a lot of the people were um, farmers, and FFA was big in my town. All hmm. my buddies had four wheelers, and hmm. I would go help them feed calves after school. And I just uh, I appreciate that now. At the time, I didn't appreciate it, hmm. uh, but I just couldn't wait to get out of there. Mm. I, and all I wanted was to go to a place where other people liked music the way that I, I did. Um, uh, I wanted to be around people who um, who seemed to like uh, cr- hunger for what art did to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't have – other than my brother, there weren't very many people in this little town that did it. So I always just felt like a weirdo, mm-hmm. I think, growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the only left-handed person in my family, too. And um, love to draw, love to do music, but so there was something in, about the the making of things that mm-hmm. um, got my attention early on. So it was the creativity of it you think that caught your attention, or or it was the mystery uh-huh. of it that mm-hmm. caught my attention. It was mm-hmm. the fact that uh, that certain kinds of movies or certain kind of books or 
music did something that I couldn't articulate mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I remember it was Pink Floyd was one of my favorite bands when I was a kid. And, you know, it's pretty trippy music. Mm-hmm. And I would lay on my bed with the, uh, the little box speaker on either side of my head mm-hmm. and my, with my eyes closed and just lose myself in this music. Like mm-hmm. it, there was just something about it that I was always – I had had these flashes of, you know, I think what C.S. Lewis called sane souked, you know, that mm-hmm. – uh, that idea that, that f- those f- flashes of almost painful longing, mm-hmm. and I was always trying to f- find more of them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so whether it was a book or a movie or a s- song, whatever it was, um, and then I then I began to to f- f- you know I had a few moments like that in the making of something. You know, mm-hmm. you know? and this was all pretty. It was divorced from my faith as I knew it at the time. Like mm-hmm. it was. Um, I think I, I I always believed in God. Mm-hmm. But I, but I also um, d- didn't see there wasn't a context in which I could um, flourish as an artist in the church. Mm-hmm. I, like that stuff was seen as kind of like a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, it wasn't like my parents were mean about it. It just yeah. no nobody had. Uh, par- it didn't fit. Well, yeah, there was not yeah. a paradigm yeah. for it where yeah. we lived. So I so yeah, it just took a long. It was just a lot of following clues. Hmm. Hmm. And learned to play instruments. Did I? Yeah. How, yeah. Did that? Did you took lessons. I, I I learned from. Uh, <laughs> I, I played piano a fair bit, Journey songs mostly mm-hmm. when I was in high school, mm-hmm. so that at church camp I could impress girls. Mm-hmm. That was the whole thing. It was mm-hmm. like I've just got to learn how to do this stuff because there are always girls in this. Artists are girls. You know, there's a lot, a, yeah. a lot of musicians out there mm-hmm. came by it honest because uh-huh. they were trying to impress a girl. Uh-huh. And so at church camp, I remember sitting <laughs> at the piano. I learned Richard Mark stuff and journey and I worked on it all summer so that that week at camp I could have something Mm -hmm. because I couldn't play sports very well Mm -hmm. and it was whatever but uh and sure enough it worked I was sitting there in the gym where the old out-of-tune piano was and I was playing these journey songs and the girls sure enough gathered around the piano and Mm -hmm. I was like it's working and on the other side of the gym a guy pulls a guitar out of the case Uh. and they all followed him out into the baseball field (laughs) and I was like I couldn't move the piano you loser (laughs) yeah so I went and uh, his name's CJ and yeah. he, I, he ended up being the guy I went to Bible college with and taught mm-hmm. me to play guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first song I ever learned was a Guns N' Roses song on the, so that I could play with him out mm-hmm. in the baseball field. Huh. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so it, I won't, there's all kinds of yeah, theology we can in that, but I, I don't think I want to go there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so now talk, talk about what you do. I mean, you, you are multifaceted. You, um, you've got this wing feather saga, which I take it is written for – uh, young people, basically, or is it yeah. or primarily, or is it, or do you see it as kind of spanning the globe? Well, I mean, the idea, like I think anybody who writes for young people would hope that grownups would read their stuff too, uh-huh. and so I think about it like Harry Potter and Narnia. It's like, sure, it's good for kids, but I would hope that the parents would would enjoy it. Yeah, I tell my I tell my wife, she says, is, is teaching adults different than teaching children? And I go. No, <laughs> and so uh, adults are easier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I was. I have a my friend uh, Jason Gray. Do you know Jason? Mm-hmm. He's a songwriter, and every summer he goes and teaches at a church camp mm-hmm. um, for kids. And he said that it's it's such a good thing for him to have to remember to have to relearn how to explain the gospel mm-hmm. to children. Yes, exactly. Um, because it's really easy to get lost in this heady stuff. That's true. And when you boil it all down, it's like, this is difficult. It's like writing poetry. Yeah. It's like whittling it down to its essence is 
a good discipline. Yeah. In fact, some people say that you, if you can't do that, then you really don't get it yet. So yeah, it's yeah. so it's um, it's an interesting challenge. But you also host the Rabbit Room now. Now, the name itself sounds intriguing, and on your website, you've got this picture of this scene in a, in a in a in a well, I guess in a in a British bar, pub, a yeah, pub, yeah, yeah. and uh, and so that's interesting. So, so what is what is the rabbit room? So the rabbit room is uh, it's it's we're still learning how to explain it um, in a sentence or two. I can tell you the the mission statement for the rabbit room. The rabbit room um, um, exists to uh, foster spiritual formation and Christ-centered community through story, art, and music. Hmm. And so it, the the idea struck um, pretty organically, but the, the moment that really where the light bulb turned on was in Oxford at the Eagle and Child, where sure. Lewis and Tolkien and their buddies would yep. sometimes hang out. And uh, and you know I'm an American, so of course I've got to go see this place when I'm there. Right. And the funny thing about the Eagle and Child pub is that it's full of Americans who are C.S. Lewis fans. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's right. Like, yeah. All the British, British people, people don't do this they anymore. Don't care, you know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Uh, Anyway, but I noticed that in that first visit that there was a little piece of paper tacked to the awning or mm -hmm. the gable going into that back room that said the rabbit room. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard that before. I'd mm -hmm. read a lot of books about C.S. Lewis, and mm -hmm. everybody knew about the eagle and child, but not about that. So I asked the bartender. I was like, hey, what does this mean? And he said, oh, I think they kept rabbits in that room in the 1600s. <laughs> no joke. And, and it got that nickname. So the the point is I was thinking about the inklings and that that friendship, mm -hmm. um, that it's easy to romanticize it and be like, oh, those guys, all these dons sitting there puffing their pipes and talking big ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but really, I think they were just friends. Yeah. They were just buddies. It was almost like the, the books were an excuse to just be together. Right. And that that friendship... Um, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis said in back of one of his books that, that uh, his favorite sound in the world is the sound of men laughing, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's one of my favorites too. So I, I get the picture in my mind of these guys just kind of using books almost as like just a, a kind of like the the garden where their friendship was growing. Hmm. And so I thought about Nashville, mm -hmm. and one of the great blessings of living in Nashville is that there are so many. Uh, people who take their craft seriously, absolutely, yeah. But who are also true believers, you yeah. know, people who really see it through the lens of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was a um, um, beneficiary—is that the right word? Yeah. Not benefactor, yeah. beneficiary of those friendships. That right. my, the the work that I was trying to do was greatly um, nourished by my friendships with other people who cared about those things. And so I was like, well, there's some synergy between what those guys happened upon. And, and Nashville. So the rabbit room was kind of an experiment in saying, what, what would it look like if we uh, tried to emulate some of the Inklings mm. stuff only in this town full of music instead mm -hmm. of a town full of Oxford Dons? Yeah, Nashville's a pretty um, interesting place. My daughter lives has lived in Nolensville for over a decade, and we're out there periodically. She's getting ready to move to Indianapolis. But, but – uh, the amount of musical talent, even in the churches. I mean, you go in the churches and you hear some pretty, pretty fantastic yeah. music and the worship and that kind of thing. And it's always struck me. It's the only airport I go to where where the little diner in the airport has live music going on at the same yeah. time. It's, yeah. And, it's and good, good live, live music. It's like the yeah. guys that are playing in those little dive bars are actually amazing. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. So, it, so it's an interesting. Uh, opportunity. Well, Glenn, let, let's talk a little bit. I'm, I, I do have one question for you, and, mm. and that is, mm. uh, you know, we talked about how 
art struggle to fit in the context of the church, mm -hmm. and yet the idea of truth and beauty is a pretty important idea yeah. in theology. So, yeah. so you're the theologian amongst us. Help mm -hmm. us with that. Why? Uh, I guess two questions: How should we think about <clears throat> truth and beauty? And secondly, why do you think it is that art struggles to kind of find its place in the church? <clears throat> uh, truth and beauty are often separated. It's mm -hmm. like truth and love, mm -hmm. or mercy and truth. Um, and in uh, in the Christian circles, particularly in evangelicalism, truth is often just uh, limited to propositional statements. Mm -hmm. um, so we talk about the this story being true, mm -hmm. or this story, uh, this story which actually is a made up story, is mm -hmm. true in a different way in which the the story of the resurrection is true. Mm -hmm. Then we move into poetry and wisdom sayings, and they are true in a different sense. That both truth and beauty, it seems to me, and I'm interested in your uh, take on this, truth and beauty have to be understood in relationship to the God who is and the Son who is the incarnation of both truth and beauty. Mm -hmm. And that music has a way, the arts have a way of expressing in in an experiential, they create an experience mm -hmm. that connects with people. I love the, the language of mystery. Um, that that somehow in this experience of beauty and truth, in a way that sometimes is difficult to put into words, mm -hmm. one experiences the the presence of God and the uh, experiences the gospel. I mean, there's something about live music. Uh, this music does that for me anyhow. But mm -hmm. there's something about live music that is a that's an amazing uh, amazing experience of. Of truth and beauty, that and the the beautiful doesn't necessarily have to. I mean, there's a sense in which even that which is not beautiful, as it draws us mm -hmm. towards the beautiful, it's, it's tragedy. A, yeah, as mm -hmm. it describes yes. the world that is mm -hmm. and the longing for the world to come. This, mm -hmm. uh, how our lives are 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 shaped by it. How arts help us to to shape us uh, by the future which is to come. Which is one of the real major themes in in your writing both uh, mu uh, both music lyrics and uh, and fantasy novels this this hope uh, of the world that is to come I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about yeah, that yeah i don't it, i've no, i noticed that about 5 albums in <laughs> that, that, that there's like a i don't know you guys are smarter than me <laughs> But there was like an eschatology to a lot of the songs. Mm -hmm. There was like I tended to focus on heaven, and I can trace how how the uh, I read into your right surprised by hope mm -hmm. several years ago, and I can see the change <laughs> in the way I thought about mm -hmm. heaven uh, mm -hmm. bear itself out in the songs, and like my the longing became even more focused and mm -hmm. pointed um, the more I began to kind of understand. Uh, the biblical picture of, of what's coming, you know, and so that that and you know, going back to when you're asking about me as a kid, it's uh -huh. like that longing that that what is it? Well, like what, there's something tugging at my heart to something. It's always pulling mm -hmm. me towards something, mm -hmm. someone. But but um, but there was always like a um, it felt like a destination to me, and mm -hmm. um, and so. Yeah, I don't know. I, that that's always come up in my in my songwriting and in the book writing too. And I think that that at least for the art that has moved me, I don't know if this is true of all art, but I think one of the the great things that it does is it it builds these uh, signposts mm -hmm. to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And um, 
You know, it's like uh, C.S. Lewis. I mean, do you remember the C.S. Lewis illustration of the the man in the shed or whatever? Mm-hmm. Do you have you heard? Mm-hmm. There's like he, he uses a great illustration of um, uh, a beam of light that's kind of you're standing in a shed, dusty shed. Mm-hmm. And there's a crack in the ceiling, mm-hmm. and there's a beam of light coming through. And you can look at the light, and you can be like, "Wow, that light! Look at that beam of light!" Mm-hmm. But something else happens entirely when you stand in the light, and mm-hmm. you look through the crack, and you see the trees outside mm-hmm. of the shed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of art that mm-hmm. cr- Christian art can do. That mm-hmm. it doesn't always do that, but it, mm-hmm. it can do that. I think it's one of the highest. Almost calls point for beyond it. itself mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah, you, like yeah. You, you, mm-hmm. the thing is beautiful, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. the goal is to move people into the light, not just yeah. to admire mm-hmm. it, but to move into it so that you can see what's on the outside. Yeah, it's I, that crack where the light shines through in Leonard yeah. Cohen's yeah. lyric. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, interesting because I, yeah, I, I do think the term mystery is an interesting one because it's almost there are some things that happen with art that are beyond words. You know. You can't express it, but you know it's there, mm-hmm. and you feel it. It's there. There are times sometimes when I see a movie, or it tends to happen to me in movies, less with music, but and where I see a movie and there's a particularly poignant moment, and all of a sudden I feel this well of emotion watching it and going, and and I don't even know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. It just boom, mm-hmm. you know, and it's mm-hmm. on you, and 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 then it leads to a kind of reflection that is that is healthy, and so. Um, yeah, I think I think we underestimate this. So we we let, let deal with the second half of the question, and then I kind of want to ask you about kind of the seasons of your writing. But the second half of the question: Why is it that you think we struggle with the placement of art? Is it because we have been captured so much by expression and word and mm. and the way we conceive of truth that we've almost limited its ability to get at us other ways? I think we have a, a hierarchical view that says the most important thing are, is the words, mm-hmm. uh, which is which makes music difficult for us to understand and mm-hmm. embrace because music is not lyrical, mm-hmm. and uh, it changes everything when the when the music changes. I mean, it, Andrew's killed a couple of his songs for me when he re-recorded them recently for that <laughs> best uh, It doesn't sound the same. Yeah, yeah, no More point. Faith doesn't sound the way it's supposed to sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that one, I went back to playing the old one uh-huh. in, in class. I think it also is because of the mystery, because of we can control, we, we think, we can mm-hmm. control words, but music and the arts are so mysterious. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's also we are we are aware of the power of mm-hmm. the arts to grip people's emotions to lead to them and some people would hear your story about a movie and be yeah. deeply troubled by that right Here. right so but you're watching the movie theologically informed mm-hmm. that if we have done a good job of not separating things that ought to be together mm-hmm. and that people are thinking theologically they're feeling theologically they're experiencing theologically they that they're not bifurcating these these ideas and mm-hmm. these in these mm-hmm. tasks um, into which is part of um, why so we do that with with the arts too. We have Christian arts and secular arts, mm-hmm. and and the, and it has usually has nothing to do with it should have nothing to do with quality. It usually has to do with content. Mm-hmm. And we're back mm-hmm. to verbal content um, instead of pursuing truth and beauty. Hmm. So I, I wanted to ask you, Andrew, about um, 
uh, about your, whether you feel like your writing has has moved at all in terms of through the seasons of life. Do, as you move, you, you've already alluded to this a little bit that you feel like you're writing with a more conscious awareness of how you address issues of hope and direction. But are there are there other moves that you see in your writing that are impacted by? Or am I am I over analyzing <laughs> what happens? You know, no, so, I, yeah, I yeah. Mean, yeah. There there's certainly growth that happens. Mm-hmm. There's a Hopefully, <laughs> anyway, um, there are some songs that people request that I won't play now because hmm. I just can't stomach it anymore. Because mm-hmm. huh. when I what I hear, because you know, if if you're if you write the kind of songs I write, then it tends to be a, a documentation of where my heart was mm-hmm. 20 years ago, or mm-hmm. and uh, there's some things that I just don't. Let, there's a song called "The Chasing Song," which mm-hmm. is on, was on my first record, and it's a song about selfishness, you mm-hmm. know, and. and uh, Whatever it's mm-hmm. it's clever mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> which that's by the way David Wilcox who's one of the great songwriters ever like I remember hearing him talk about how when he listens to his young songs he hears himself trying to be clever mm-hmm. and I was like what's wrong with being clever yeah <laughs> and now I, I see it, is like the last thing you want to do is draw attention to yourself and yeah. not the thing that you're pointing to yeah and so sometimes that cleverness can be a a, a hurdle so and this is one of those songs and and it was so what I hear is a kid who is um, grew up fairly legalistic and was in Bible college and was pretty self-righteous and mm-hmm. was really, really good at beating himself up. Mm-hmm. That's what I hear when I hear that song. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it is almost not at all about the grace of God or mm-hmm. the Christ's work on the cross or anything like that. So when I hear it, I'm like, I just don't – not only do I not feel that, but I, I would rather sing about the other side of that coin mm-hmm. to people. And so mm-hmm. when people request it, I've got to go, do I explain all that or do I just, <laughs> do I just say no? I don't know. So, the, yeah, but there are some songs. I, I get one of the great blessings – and, I, and my, my dad, like I said, is a pastor. Mm-hmm. He remember he- hearing him talk about this, that one of the great blessings of working at a, the same church for a really long time mm-hmm. is that you, um, you know, you actually get to see some of the fruit of your ministry. Yeah, absolutely. You, know? uh, you get to uh, marry people that you were there for their birth, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And so as a musician, you know, I've been at this for about 20 years now, and uh, and I've been able to uh, document like I said, this different stages in my life. So one of the cool things that happens at concerts is that the people that are about my age will come up and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing about the stuff that they're that is right around the corner from them as mm-hmm. parents mm-hmm. or uh, as married people are, you know, like I just last two albums of mine were more or less about a midlife crisis. Um, and, you know, I didn't want the albums to be about that. That was just what the Lord was doing. Mm-hmm. In me, and so it's been so f- interesting to meet all these guys at shows that are like, "Man, I'm 39. <laughs> I really needed that last record." You know, and so it's been one of the fun things is, is being at this long enough to have seen, you know, a, n- slight changes in like the way I write songs. But really, it's it's there's a consistency to just trying to be faithful to exactly where God has me. It's mm-hmm. a, like every part of our story. Is interesting if you look closely enough at it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I do. I do think it's interesting how how art just kind of takes us, has the capability of taking us to places that otherwise we might not even go. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, "If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican." Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? 
This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Um, you put Christian and art together, and some people say, um, well, you, it really isn't Christian until you're really explicit about what you're doing. And then other people say – Because uh, Jesus is always so explicit. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah that's right. He, 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 talked in, he talked in very precise theological <laughs> and never used a parable. No. And, uh, um, and, then, uh, and then other people say, no, um, uh, art and, and, and drawing people in, sometimes the, some of the beauty of it is the mystery and the subtlety of it. Um, so that's an open-ended question, yeah. kind of where. Well, I think I think a lot of uh, it's it's easy to get lazy about how we experience art. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, there's there's a lot of stuff that people m- may think, oh well, that's kind of highfalutin, whatever. I'm just like a normal guy, mm-hmm. and I kind of want to be like, actually, no, you're pretty smart, mm-hmm. and if you just kind of gave it a little bit of time, it would open itself up to you in a really rich and beautiful way, and so. Uh, so I think that's part of it is that I think that people are intimidated by this idea that, you know, something that isn't explicit that you've got to really dwell with. Mm-hmm. Um, they're afraid maybe that they aren't going to get it and what that might suggest about themselves. Mm-hmm. I just think I think it's kind of we we can slip into that, especially in our culture. Um, there's so many movies that that uh, are you know tremendously moving. If you if you kind of like you were talking about with develop an ability to see things or think about things theologically, you can experience things differently. I remember watching the movie Hellboy. Did you ever see that? No, movie? I didn't. So Hellboy is this comic yeah. comic character, and he's a he's a. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I haven't talked about this in a long time. I wonder if we I should even spend any time on it. But, it, but he's a comic character who was was a, a a demon or whatever that ended up being raised by a priest, hmm. right? He a portal opens and this baby demon ends up in our world. This is hmm. comic book stuff. So yeah. Gotta, yeah, And he's raised by a priest, and the priest gives him a new name hmm. and tells him, "You have a different name than whatever." And and the whole story in Hellboy is of this like big bad demon trying to tell Hellboy, "You are not who your father is. You are who I say you are." Hmm. And as soon as he like the big climactic moment in the movie is when he he literally breaks his own demon horns hmm. and claims the name that his priest father gave him. Hmm. And I remember just sitting in the theater weeping uh-huh. because that that whole name idea is one of the ones that I've struggled with the most. I'm very susceptible to to the enemy's attacks in that way. I like mm. I believe lies about myself all the mm. time. And so it profoundly affected me. And the guy I was sitting with, I was like, oh my goodness, did you notice all the whatever? And he was like, what are you talking <laughs> about? It was just a cool monster. Yeah, you know? right. so I think, and, and I just mm. think that that's part of, because of my job, I've, I've, been, I've gotten into the habit of looking for the metaphor, looking for how is the Lord speaking now? You mm-hmm. know? And you know, I don't know if you've heard, uh, I don't know who said it, if this is just an old saying. People say there are two books of Revelation, there's mm-hmm. Scripture and there's nature. Mm-hmm. And so as a hobby gardener and beekeeper at home, um, 
uh, all of that stuff is metaphor. Mm -hmm. It's like God, God is using metaphor constantly through creation. Well, to He started talk about us off himself. in a garden. Yeah, you know, and yeah. we're supposed to pretend the garden and manage it well, and as a way of talking about stewardship. So that shouldn't be mm -hmm. uh, too surprising. Right. Uh, how, how we didn't raise this earlier. Maybe it's a good time to talk about it now. Talk a little bit about your family and how I was talking about the seasons of life. And I guess one of the things I had in the back of my mind in asking that question is um, as, as you move through, you talked about early on writing, thinking about, well, some of the stuff that I write I don't like as much anymore because I was just being clever or felt, felt like I was just being clever. How much does, does the presence of your family and the way you interact with your family impact your art? Or, or oh, man. Um, I, I don't even know how to uh, talk about that. It's, it, they're kind of at the heart of it. And mm -hmm. they've always been at the heart of it. Like mm -hmm. the reason I do music is because my wife talked me into it. Mm. Um, uh, she's pretty, so I tend to. <laughs> I'm a pushover. Yeah. And so, uh, no, she has always um, seen something in me that she doesn't even really like music all that much, mm -hmm. is the yeah. irony. Huh. Um, but she just, she has always loved me. Mm. And um, she saw some gift or some desire that I had to try to do music. And so she fanned the flame. And, and you know, at, um, I would rather be home than on stage any day, mm -hmm. um, and so it, and, and I think that's part of the culture of our family. Like we we take the the call very seriously, the vocational spiritual call to to use my gift and just try to steward it for God's kingdom. Um, does not mean that it's always fun for me to. Well, you even talk music. about that on your webpage. I mean, I just uh, I mm. saw that on your webpage that you were talking about the, you know, the traveling does get old. You do yeah, miss your yeah, family, yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and so so they are the, the, you know, I don't want to say they're my muse. That isn't mm. exactly what I mean. But the, but they are the thing that uh, that the the truest part of my life. I think is mm -hmm. is um, the way God has opened up mm. the gospel to me through. My wife and my children. Now, Glenn, you had some questions you wanted to ask Andrews about craft. Let's talk about that. And then your your kids are musicians too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is a blast. Mm -hmm. My my, I've been married twenty two years. My oldest is eighteen, mm -hmm. um, and then a seventeen year old, and then a fourteen year old girl. And all of them play music. And we mm -hmm. we've done a few family band tours around Europe, even. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is one of the greatest feelings in the world to to turn around and see my children uh, using their gifts, mm -hmm. um, not just for the kingdom, but for their dad. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's like, holy cow, I can't believe mm -hmm. that they're cool enough to want to hang out with me right now. Yeah, well, I, it, And I don't have to pay them. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. For, their, for their dad, but also typologically for their heavenly father. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Once yeah, again, it's true. it all comes together. So um, <clears throat> I don't write much poetry. Had to dabble a little bit in songwriting, and it's a completely different animal yeah. from the kind of writing that I do. So you're a songwriter, lyricist, and a um, and a fiction novelist. Those are two radically different genres. Yeah. So I've had songwriters say to me, who are students at, at the seminary, so you ask for a ten-page paper. I've spent all my life boiling my thoughts down to a phrase. I write a page and a half. I got nothing. That's it. <laughs> so, somewhere in there is a question about yeah. the, the craft of writing. Yeah. Well, I think I hear exactly what you're saying is that, that poetry and songwriting, which are very, very different, uh, but they are about di a lot of distilling, a mm -hmm. lot of like whittling down. And um, and that, that happens in novel writing too, but in a, in a much less uh, dramatic way, mm -hmm. I think. Um, 
the way I've described it in the past is that songwriting is a, tends to be about uh, eh, patience. Mm. Novel writing is about endurance. Mm. And so one is a sprint and one is a mar- marathon. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, like with songwriting, I remember Rich Mullins saying one time that songwriting was like going fishing. You get all your stuff ready, you go and you sit by the pond and you kind of wait. There's a lot of waiting that happens. and mm-hmm. Because you do need some flash of an idea or mm-hmm. you need to happen upon something mm-hmm. that opens the door to the song or whatever it is. And so, uh, so you know, countless nights of me sitting up with my guitar falling asleep because mm-hmm. I just cannot think of an idea. Mm-hmm. But when you're writing a story, you just kind of meander. Mm-hmm. You're just like, you, it doesn't have to be good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're just writing sentences. Get building, something down on the paper. Building paragraphs and going, yeah. well, maybe this happens and maybe that doesn't yeah. happen. And then the editing process is the really fun part of like mm-hmm. taking this lump of clay and turning it into a piece of pottery. Mm-hmm. But, but it's like 2,000 words a day. That was my, my thing. I was like, mm-hmm. I would get up in the morning, go to Starbucks, and not let myself go home until I'd written 2,000 words. Mm-hmm. And, and in that way, writing a book is just math. You know, mm-hmm. It's like, well, it, if I'm truly committed to writing 2,000 mm-hmm. words a day, it'll take me three months to write the first draft. Mm-hmm. You, know? you, you um, told me one time in the midst of that that you hadn't written a song for a while. Yeah. So how, do you, how do you get back then to writing <laughs> With a lot of fear and failure. I, songwriting, man, is just so so hard for me um and it, it's getting harder the older mm-hmm. i get um but the, i don't know what exactly it is about it but like it's kind of like blogging i don't know if you mm-hmm. ever tried blogging yes but in the beginning it was like this is a blast yeah, yeah. and now when i think about writing a blog post i'm like because i think i'm i've grown as a writer mm-hmm. i'm a lot more picky than mm-hmm. i was before and i'll i'll be like actually that that wouldn't make a good post like mm-hmm. what do i so i tend to write those a lot less so i think the songs are the same way that like and you know, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think that if I were more kind of youthful and spry, I would just write a bunch of bad stuff and find something good. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I just, I, if it's if I don't feel it, then I abandon it or mm-hmm. I put it aside and work on something else. Mm-hmm. So what, which comes first, the music or the? That's exactly <laughs> my question. <laughs> that is the age-old question. Yeah, um, it happens different every time. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. no, there's no consistent thing. And I usually say that if somebody tells you they know exactly how to write a song, they're either a bad songwriter or a liar. Hmm. And so the, the, in, anytime you, you engage in the creative act, um, you are entering into mystery mm-hmm. of some kind. Like we are, like it's an embodiment of one of the core uh, elements of our, uh, who we are as image bearers of, mm-hmm. of a creative God. And so who are we to think that we know how that works? Mm-hmm. Other than you do the work and you're present and you, you are curious, and you, you try to maintain a sense of wonder, but but always a sense of humility, mm-hmm. because you're, what you're entering into is something that you don't understand. Mm-hmm. And and so when I teach writing workshoppy stuff, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes I'll go and teach, and I usually try to. It's not about nitpicking lyrics or choruses or whatever. It's about how to cultivate a writing life, mm-hmm. how to how to mm-hmm. learn how to be discerning artistically, learn how to what because I feel like that's that's a. Whether or not the songs are good, I think God is not nearly as interested in the songs we're writing as He is in, in who He's shaping us to be. Well, we are the song that is being written, mm-hmm. and so that—that's the thing that I like thinking about the most. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, once again, it's a metaphor that's playing out. It's like I'm hacking away at this thing in order to make something beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes so, you've got a tune, and sometimes you've got lyrics and that need a tune. Is that, yeah, is that thank you for bringing yeah. us back to the original yeah. question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, that's very subtle of you. <laughs> so no, yeah. uh, I think th- it works best when they both are born at the same time. Uh-huh. Like it, like if I write some lyrical passage that I think is really good, and then I later try to put music to it, I feel like I can always hear that that's mm-hmm. how it happens. 
happened. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But if it like ideally the way it works is not to you, this may be too specific, but yeah. you're sitting there playing the guitar uh-huh. and you get a rhythm mm-hmm. and then you start mumbling things mm-hmm. and, a, and a phrase comes out of the mumble mm-hmm. that you latch onto because it's interesting and mm-hmm. then you try to find out why. Mm-hmm. where the mumble came from, why that phrase, mm-hmm. and you chase it down. That mm-hmm. way, the, the thing that you blurted out came out so naturally and organically that it, it kind of has it to fit, exist with that the music. guitar riff yeah. or that piano yeah. part. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And, you know, the best songs, you can hear that happening. It's mm-hmm. like there's a rhythm to them and a syncopation to it, and the lyric just, like, sits in the bed of music perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I can, you can tell that that happened at once. You know? mm-hmm. But it's different than writing with people, writing with somebody else. Yeah, I don't do that. So. <laughs> I'm too scared to do that. Mm-hmm. I, and I, it's, Cindy Morgan is this wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. songwriter. I just did a show with her a few days ago, and uh, she co-writes constantly. Like mm-hmm. a lot of guys in Nashville go from studio to studio all week long and love it. Mm-hmm. So much so that they kind of don't can't do it mm-hmm. unless they're co-writing. Mm-hmm. They just enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. And I just have this – I'm too much of a chicken. Mm-hmm. I just sit in the room and, and have zero – it's like mm-hmm. static on a TV. They're mm-hmm. like, what do you think about that? <laughs> mm. Yeah, uh, and uh, I just I can go home and work on something somebody gives me, but yeah. What's the live um, experience like? So, in um, for me, I prepare to to teach. I walk into mm-hmm. the classroom, and something happens. The spirit of God is present in the community. You give that same kind of yeah. experience, and I mean, you rewrite songs in a live performance. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, mm-hmm. I, the I change the set list every time. Mm. I mean, there's very seldom do I do the exact same songs every night um, because I try to be sensitive to the spirit or to the vibe of the room or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the live thing is the, the one, my favorite thing to do. Like, I love to write books. I love music. Um, but, but when I'm on stage and the audience is with me and, uh, you know, ideally it's when people are already familiar with the songs. And I'm not mm-hmm. like coming in going, hi, my name's Andrew, you've never heard me, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's a room full of people who know the songs already and we can experience them together kind of objectively mm-hmm. uh, without, it's like I'm not a part of it. It's like the song is the thing then. And uh, that is just one of the best feelings in the world. The feeling of connection of looking out and seeing people moved to either joy or, um, you know, sadness by your own story mm-hmm. is just a giant affirmation that the Lord uses art to connect us. Mm-hmm. So you're a, a Christian artist who grew up in a um, in a subculture that really didn't understand the arts and didn't understand. I music. would say so. Mm-hmm. You're the father of artistic uh, offspring. Uh-huh. Um, talk to us a little bit about how those of us who care about Christians in the arts can encourage artists how we could yeah our own children mm-hmm. grandchildren but uh, in the church yeah well I, I just think um, we try in, in our all I can tell you is about how we do it in our house like we we from a very young age I helped um, I exposed the kids to music that wasn't by Christians um, just because I I, I I would rather them listen to a good song by somebody who's not a Christian than a really bad song by somebody who is Mm-hmm. And so to try to cultivate in them a little bit of like healthy snobbery about what mm-hmm. good music is mm-hmm. um, and, and to look at the way the Lord uses that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I remember from a very young age, like playing Counting Crows for my kids, like one of my favorite bands in college. And, uh, you know, they, they tend to add, they tend to want to know what the songwriter believes. Mm-hmm. Like as little children, they'd be six years old and they'd hear a song and be like, is that guy a Christian? Like, 
what, what is he singing about here? And we would mm-hmm. cultivate uh, a habit of asking questions about where the art came from, what it might mean. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's the thing is we just, you know, and even now my kids don't think of there being a hard divide between Christian music mm-hmm. and secular music. They're just on the hunt for something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as far as them playing music, we just leave instruments out. We didn't, we didn't really force them to take lessons. I just mm. would leave guitars in their bedrooms at night, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and they gravitated to it. <laughs> so, so, um, so if you were to give advice to, um, I'll say pastors and church leaders about how to in- encourage the arts in their communities, what would you, hmm. what would you say to them? Well, I think it. Uh, just off the cuff, yeah. I think, um, you know, there's this th- there's this thing that like uh, in the movie business where you know they try to market movies to Christian audiences. You mm-hmm. know, like The Shack is coming out, whatever. Yep, I've been uh, in the midst of those. I know what that's and like. And I've never read the book. Yeah, but I just I know enough about it to be kind of like a little eye rolly. Right. And uh, but then a movie like Silence came out. Mm-hmm. Um, that I have friends who say that it's their favorite book. It's a very difficult book, but it's mm-hmm. also a probing and deep and honest book. Mm-hmm. You know? And one movie that was Silence, mm-hmm. arguably a very Christian movie, flopped. Selma, mm-hmm. like in many ways, a very Christian movie, flopped. But then right. the church just gravitates to these other things. But the truth of it is, is that like the the Christians that they're trying to market all these other movies to mm-hmm. are really just watching Netflix. They're mm-hmm. watching. Mm. mainstream movies at yeah. home and i think a lot of pastors are doing the same thing you know uh-huh. and so so we have almost this shame like we're not really supposed to be watching this thing or listening to that band or whatever and and how many times have uh you know i remember even as a kid being so excited when my dad would mention like indiana jones from the pulpit uh-huh. and just say like, okay, remember that scene in whatever mm-hmm. when this happened as a way of illustrating? And it's not like, you know, pastors have to use movies. But, like, to to integrate the, the like, who we are as – so let me say one more. I'm getting off topic yeah. maybe. Yeah. But I was read this fat, interesting article <laughs> uh-huh. in Entertainment Weekly uh, on a plane or something where this guy was talking about Netflix. And this was back before it was streaming. It was mm-hmm. all DVDs that mm-hmm. would come to your house. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, how many – he was talking about how many times he would, like – uh, order movies and then they would show up at his house and he would be like, what was I thinking? I don't really want to watch this. And he would mm-hmm. mail it back. Mm-hmm. And he said he realized that there was the movie watcher he wishes he was mm-hmm. and then there's the movie watcher he actually is. Mm-hmm. And like he wishes he watched Art House films, but really he just wants to watch Taken 3 you know? <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Right. And so I think it's like there's a part of me that's like, well, let's just own up to the fact that we uh, are experiencing these things in this way. Mm-hmm. and see how the gospel speaks to us in it. And the other thing I would say is that uh, I'm Frederick Buechner had a mm-hmm. huge influence on me. Our church is actually reading Telling Secrets, uh, church book club that we're doing. And uh, I've been reminded reading that book how beautiful it is that the way Buechner talks about m- how important it is for ministers to be honest with their own stories. I was actually That's actually going to be my next question is I'm hearing a tone of honesty. Let's be honest about life. Yeah. That yeah. that that I'm hearing you consistently push at and and I sometimes think the church is guilty of 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 covering over the hard parts and the tensions of life and therefore there's a there's a disconnect between the reality of the tension people feel in life versus the way the church talks about what they feel. Mm-hmm. And there's a supposed to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
and versus the way I'm, I may be really feeling or the way I'm really processing what's going on, that kind of thing. And, I'm, and, I, and, I, and I do think that good art has the ability to expose that. If that, I think that's the right word too. Mm-hmm. To expose that, and all of a sudden you're com- it, it confronts you in a way in which you you go, I can't turn away. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've got to face up to this mm-hmm. thing that's been put in front of me and actually interact with it. Mm-hmm. I can't shut it off. It's too powerful, etc. And that's that's some of the strength of art when we when we keep our eyes open mm-hmm. for it and are willing to walk into those spaces. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of Christian artists who are doing that and doing it well. Exactly that, that right. piece you wrote in response to Bono's Bono comment thing, to, yeah. to, to Peterson. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> but there are. I mean, that, that thing exploded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there are there are a lot of artists who are telling the truth who are who are doing that well. Yeah, you could say the same thing about filmmakers too. Mm-hmm. And, and there, there's so many people working really hard. There's a guy in Nashville who's his he's a film marketer eric loximo and really nice guy but his job is to try to find a way to get christians to watch movies that uh kind of fall in the middle Mm -hmm. where they're like too christian for the mainstream but too not not safe Mm -hmm. enough for the typical christian audience Mm -hmm. and it's just to me i'm like oh man why isn't the church embracing Mm -hmm. these things they're they're, it's so hard to make a movie Mm -hmm. that when a movie comes out that is honest in that way like Mm -hmm. man support it you know mm-hmm. it's good it's telling the truth mm-hmm. talk, talk um, if you would for a couple of minutes about yeah. the, the transition now of wing feather to yeah film. oh man mm-hmm. what a fun thing mm-hmm. uh i can be really brief but the so the wing feather saga is this four book big fantasy adventure story mm-hmm. that i usually describe as being a cross between princess bride and lord of the rings so it's big and epic but it also you know is a little bit fun mm-hmm. at times and so uh anyway we uh, I have for years have thought, you know, the kids will ask, when are you going to make a movie? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just can't ever imagine somebody giving me the $5 million it would take. Not me, but yeah. putting up and the $5 million. that's not that much for a movie. Right. And yeah. then it would be really bad and dumb. Yeah. But then because of the fact that I, I think uh, we're living in like the golden age of television, mm-hmm. where like the, the, some of the best storytellers have gravitated to that mm-hmm. serial television thing because mm-hmm. they have this freedom and the time to expand the world and mm-hmm. build a character and follow them. I was like, what if there was a, like a Netflix four-season uh, show that was mm-hmm. Wing Feather Saga season season one, two, three, and four. That so we could really tell the story, which is ultimately a story about resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, anyway, I uh, pitched it to a buddy of mine, and he's a producer. I, I, I met him at Veggie Tales, mm-hmm. and he was was done with Veggie Tales and looking for a project. And I was mm-hmm. like, what if we were to make a Wing Feather Saga mm-hmm. pilot and mm-hmm. pitch to Netflix? So that's what we're doing. We're mm-hmm. making a, uh, a kind of a proof of concept pilot that we raised money for on Kickstarter and. Uh, and if and if we can get in through the door, we're going to say, hey, you guys, let us make this movie. Oh, wow. So, mm. so that sounds pretty cool. Mm. Well, I, flown by. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get to beekeeping yet. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we'll save the bees for another story. Okay. But anyway, but uh, I really appreciate your willingness to come in and talk with us about, about the arts a little bit. And hopefully this has been an encouragement in a, in a – in a, in a stimulation of people about thinking about the way in which we can be touched and impacted by God and the way we see the world and reality. I, I sometimes think that some of the most powerful illustrations I get are the, are the words that people have written for lyrics and that kind of thing that, that open up a conversation uh, and that dis- distill 
certain things that are going on in life in, in such a packaged way that, that you end up in a space that you might not otherwise occupy. And so um, I do appreciate your willingness to come in and interact with sure. us on this. Thanks for having me. And also for you, Glenn, I, I think some people will go, that guy teaches systematic theology at Dallas. <laughs> yeah, he does. he does. Yeah, so uh, and he wants to be a songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> We're waiting. <laughs> so we thank you for being a part of the table, and hope you'll join us again soon. And we hope this has been uh, an opportunity to really uh, reflect on where God has you. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu/slash/thetable. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.